welcome aboard the Giddy Carousel of Pop, a podcast all about the brilliant pop mag smash hits. And what we do is take an old issue, usually from the 80s, although we may slide a year or two either side of that and have a good poke around its pages with a guest, who could be a pop kid, someone who worked on the mag, and with any luck, you never know, maybe even a pop star who appeared on its pages. I'm Simon Galloway, and with me is the chirpy chap himself, Mr. Gavin Hogg. All right, sorry, how am you? All right. <laughs> All right, thank Good. you. Uh, yourself? Very well, thank you for asking, yes. L- lovely to hear that. So you've got a few hellos and shout-outs yes, and Yes, I have. And stuff. I, uh, I tweeted a bit earlier on today, on, uh, and I just said, if anyone wants a mention in our preamble, they should retweet us, and we had five retweets. So thank you very much to the following people for retweeting. We've got Viva Lynn, uh, Laura Walkerdine. Uh, Rich Goodall, Tim Ward and Jim C. So thanks to those lovely people. And um, maybe I could just say a few hellos to a few other Twitter followers, some of our recent ones, too many to mention. But uh, Bethan Roberts, uh, hello to you. Thank you for following. Uh, Tim Difford, Derek O'Reilly, John McCabe and Shirley Ann Lloyd. And everyone else who's not been mentioned, thank you. Always, Always lovely to get a bit of communication on the Twitter, isn't it? It's very nice indeed. We are also on Facebook and uh, Instagram as well, but we'll tell you about that in due course. So it's about time we welcomed our special guest waiting in an orderly queue to join us on the carousel for some volitional reconsumption. It's a, that's volitional reconsumption. It's a big hello to pop kid Catherine Sked. Hello. <laughs> hello there. Thank you for agreeing to come on and talk about Smash It. My pleasure. Now, the carousel has taken us back to the 4th to the 17th of November 1987, which Kath has picked out for us, uh, with you two on the cover. Quite frankly, looking a bit bored, although I'm not sure if that was the effect they were going for. And if you want to read along with us, you can do just that thanks to a couple of amazing websites, Brian McCloskey's Like Punk Never Happened or Smash Hits Remembered. And we've done all the hard work for you. You'll find links to the scans of this issue in the show notes, along with Spotify and YouTube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this thrill-packed issue of Ver Hits on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog. And you'll also find these links on our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop or at Giddy Pop Pod. So before we clamber aboard the carousel, let's find out what each of us was up to in November 1987. Kath? Uh, I was 16. I was just heading into the sixth form at Marple Ridge High School, doing my A-levels and enjoying school, enjoying music, enjoying my friends, um, just having a lovely time. Music-wise, it was a transition period for me. I was moving from mainstream, I would say, leaving behind the music that was on top of the pops and, you know, that everybody listened to with a desire very much to be a little bit different. So quite hungry for anything that was, you know, not going to be on mainstream television. Um, Watching the chart show, you know, um, finding out what was on the Was the tube still around in 87? It it, it finished in 87, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anything like that. I mean, my friends at school were a massive influence as well. Two two people especially. Um, A girl who was my my closest friend and my boyfriend at the time who had a mobile uh, disco. It was a (laughs) DJ. And he had an encyclopedic knowledge of music, even at 17 years old. Because, you know, he's in the upper sixth, obviously. Yeah. You go for an older boyfriend, course, don't you, when you're in the yeah. sixth form. So, uh, yeah, it, it was it was a really exciting period in music for me. So what bands did you discover? What, who did you get into at that time? 
in your transition period? There was a massive explosion of indie music yeah. that I was really into. Um, the Sugar Cubes were huge for me. Uh, first time I heard Birthday, it just totally blew me away. But, you know, the Smiths, uh, Lloyd Cole, the House Martins, even a little bit of goth-type music. Yeah. I liked a bit of Sisters and The Cure I absolutely loved. It was basically somebody brought a record, as we called it then. We didn't say vinyl, did we? No. Um, pe- people brought records into school and, and we were all hungry to find out, you know, where they got them from and, you know, 12 inches with unusual tracks on yeah. the B side and all that. It, it, it was just so exciting. Well, you showed us a photo earlier on of your common room from... From school, didn't you? Yes. And you had a record player in the common room, which we did. I think certainly not my experience. We had a ghetto blaster. So, how did that work? Did you kind of if people brought in records? Was there a, a bit of a pecking order, or was it just a free for all? Or it was a bit like you know, um, what's that program Dara Brian does on television, where the, the comedians all get oh, down from the, the yeah, Mot yeah. the week when yeah. the comedians get off the step and the next person's yeah. down to get in there. It was like that, you know, you would, <laughs> you'd be waiting for somebody's record to finish, and then because you were allowed one track each and then you know somebody else would go up but there was kind of there was a tacit understanding that you didn't sort of you know take too many goes um yeah and then obviously lunch times and break times but as soon as you played music during school time proper school time mr salt whose office was directly next to the sixth form common room would march in and get cross with us all and (laughs) i'm trying to teach a lesson so yeah it was it was a good laugh. Yeah, bit of Zodiac mind walk pounding through the walls or yeah. something. Psycho candy. <laughs> Never understand. Full blast. So was, that, was that one of your main ways of listening to new things or getting turned on to new things? Yes. Yeah. There was, we all understood that we weren't bringing in anything mainstream. Mm. Some people kind of booked the trend and would, would walk in with Bross yeah. and put it on and, you know, like, well, it's my right to play Bross. You all get to play... <laughs> The sun and the moon, you know. Yeah. <laughs> let's uh, let's shake it up a bit, but it was frowned upon. Definitely frowned upon. So I guess by the time you're at sixth form, Smash It's is starting to kind of fade out from your life, and it's the weekly inkies that are coming in instead. Definitely, yeah. I mean, it was very poppy, wasn't it? Smash Hits, and that was for me. I felt I'd left pop behind, and then Enemy stepped in. You're either Enemy or Melody Maker school I was an mm. enemy person yeah and that was yeah about 87 I would say that that happened oh, yeah well very similar really to uh, to Kath in, in many ways I was more of enemy than Melody Maker although I, I did buy them both quite often but if I only got one it would generally be the enemy and by this point I did actually get this issue of smash hits but I had stopped having it on order um probably about six months before but being a big U2 fan, I think that was what kind of drew me in and, and I, I bought um, this issue. Also, it had the Smiths in there as well. So I had that little the poster, that, well, the little picture of Morrissey with the uh, motorbike behind him had up on my wall from this issue. And also what you were saying about the common room, I had a similar thing. I was in my second year at sixth form. And when I was at school, the mates that I had weren't really into music and the ones that did like a bit of music had pretty bad taste. They were all kind of into Marillion and frigging Queen, you know, and stuff like that. Not that I mind a little bit of that now and again, but that was kind of all I listened to. And I wasn't really into any of that. But then when I got to college and I met different people and some really interesting kind of arty kind of people that were into quite 
alternative and um, interesting music, some kind of more underground things. So like you, it was that kind of explosion of interest in those things. Mm. So um, I remember in our common room, it was quite a big space and there were four very kind of distinct corners and, and there were kind of musical tribes in there. So there was like a, a metal and rockers kind of tribe. Yeah. And we all had, everyone had a ghetto blaster in every corner and you tried to drown everyone else out. So the metals, metal rockers in one corner, there was like the kind of hippie goths in another corner, smelling of patchouli oil and in like free-flowing skirts. Uh, there was the kind of indie alternative um, kind of people that I was kind of part of. Uh, and then there were the, the townies, the trendies who wore kind of rugby shirts and, you know, went to next for their clothes. <laughs> Crazy, imagine that. So um, there was a bit of sort of intersection in, in the Venn diagrams, like the, the hippie goths kind of got on a bit with some parts of the indie and alternative kids and, and the metalers, but the, the townies and trendies were their own. But that was about two-thirds of the college were, were those people anyway, so there was plenty in that tribe. They were just kind of chart music, really, so it was Wet, Wet, Wet and Tapau and then Jericho and and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, I had no uh, no truck with at all. We did form a band as well, I've forgotten this. Me and a couple of mates formed a band called Velma and the Mystery Machine. And it was really a bit of a lark to get out of. So there was this thing at college called Supplementary Studies, and it was a period or a couple of periods a week where if you had a project that you wanted to develop and a bit of time to do this thing, I think they saw it as a, you know, a, an enriching sort of... Uh, opportunity for you if you like so I played a bit of guitar anyway and my mate Cole was singer and lyricist he was really into Lloyd Cole and Morrissey so he wrote these you know kind of uh, lyrics in that kind of vein and another mate called Mike who played guitar and then my mate Dave who wasn't a musician at all but he was a lazy sod and he wanted to get out and do anything else so he bought a drum machine about 50 quid from Argos just like the most basic drum machine you could get just so we could join our band and arse around on this bloody drum machine. And it sounded awful. You can imagine what a cheap 1987 drum machine sounded like. Doo -doo, doo -doo, doo -doo. You know, that's all it was. And we were trying to play these kind of indie acoustic kind of songs. And, and all over the top of them, is like, boom, 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 boom. It's like bloody Phil Collins playing with the Lars. It was really bizarre. So, uh, it sounded like EastEnders. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it really was. Um, so yeah, so that was uh, that was fun. So I was getting into playing a bit of music as well. I'd been learning guitar for a few years by that point. That's kind of where I was up to. What about you, Si? Uh, well, I was let's see, fourteen years old. So I'm, I'm the baby. Here. Ah, yeah, third year at school. There's not much pressure, and you're in your third year at school, so you can just kind of drift through, which is what I mainly did at school. And I've been trying to think back. You know, I've got any memories of school at that time? I haven't really, apart from one, and that's the, the well, a couple, that the new Brian Ferry album had come out this month. It's reviewed in this issue. I'd gone out and bought it on day of release, gone straight from school, got the bus into town, went and bought the album, brought it back home and, and you know, thought it was amazing. Of course I did. And my English teacher was interested in hearing it, so I did a tape of it for him. And we were chatting before we started recording. Kath, you, you did your teacher training at my school after yes. I left. <laughs> and my English teacher was your kind of, what was he, your mentor or something? Yeah, oh, Danny. Yeah, <laughs> Danny Lester. Looked like Freddie Mercury and would uh, walk around uh, with his, his tie flapped over his shoulder Oof. if it was windy outside. And then he'd come into the classroom with it still over his shoulder and go, sir, 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 your tie's over your shoulder. And he'd go, oh, yeah, it's windy. Yeah. And he'd, he'd put it down. So he talked a little bit like Cliff Richards. I was going to say, that's yeah. like he a little bit like Cliff Richard, uh, but looked like Freddie Mercury. <laughs> Windswept and interesting. Yeah. 
Um, so I did, did him a tape of uh, Brian Ferry's Bet Noir album. But I got a tape back from one of the other teachers, Mr. Cross. He was the geography teacher, big 70s prog fan and stuff like that. He'd got the new Fleetwood Mac album, Tango in the Night. I wanted to hear that. My sister wanted to hear it as well. So he gave him a C60 and he, uh, and he taped that for me. I think, you know, uh, look at it now. Is that crossing a bit of a line? I don't know. <laughs> well, I think it's all right. Is that all right? Yeah. Was yeah. it Memorex or TDK? Um, the uh, well, I used a, I used a rubbish inferior tape from oh, the Brian wow. Ferry album to to give to him. Right. Um, so that was a BASF, you know. Well, that's crossing a line. So yeah, I, yeah. So, so I didn't need that. I was okay. To, you know, I yeah. can live without that tape. I can take that hit. Um, I can't remember what the C60 was. Probably yeah, TDK or Maxell or something. Oh, well, that's like fair. That, you know. Yeah. So in terms of other music at that time, recording a lot of stuff from the telly. I've got my uh, VHS tape here. Uh, music on TV, July '87 to February '88. So there wasn't an awful lot in the charts going on that I liked at that time. It took me uh, all those months to, to fill a three-hour videotape. So uh, I wasn't necessarily listening to a lot of new music or buying a lot of new music. I was going for the old stuff. I discovered record fairs and bootlegs and ah. B-sides and, and all those sorts of things. I was you know, massively, massively into all that. Uh, so the new music that I was encountering was through Top of the Pops and, and also on, on the radio. So I'd uh, always listen to Johnny Walker on a Saturday afternoon. He played uh, grown-up music, you know. <laughs> um, always Annie Nightingale on a Sunday evening because you, you'd always hear something uh, fun and interesting on there. And then uh, Singled Out, which was the kind of round table singles review program yeah. with Mike Reed and I actually phoned in once because <laughs> they got some details about a Brian Ferry single wrong. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, I think you're uh, fine. I think you're fine. <laughs> That's, uh, that was originally a hit for Jim Reeves in 1962. Yeah, it was that kind of thing, which, you know, Mike Reed should have known. I've, I've got that on a cassette somewhere, so I'll see if I can dig, oh, see if I can dig that out and, uh, and, and attach that to the, um, to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Katie Thomas from Whitney in Oxfordshire uh, says Brian Ferry's record was unadulterated, boring drivel. Paul was, wasn't that bad. Pauline Shelley from Buckingham said after hearing Brian Ferry's single, she thinks cover versions should not be allowed. Uh, Mark Clay from Peterborough says that Brian Ferry is in a time machine going backwards. Never mind releasing it; he should never oh, recorded dear. it. Uh, Simon Galloway from Sheffield says the Brian Ferry single is actually an outtake from his 1978 album. Mm-hmm. So there. So I think that that takes us um, back to um, 1987 and, and where we're all at. So before we get stuck into this issue, without giving too much away, Kath, why did you why did you choose this one? Honestly, because of you two on the front cover. Okay. I'd, I'd been a huge U2 fan through my teens, you know, up to becoming a sixth former, and that picture on the front there is just, you know, it, it drew me to this particular edition. A lot of leather going on. Leather you know. waistcoat from Bono. Yeah, and he's pouting. And he's got very freckly arms. I've just noticed for the first time. Very freckly arms there he's got. But they've all got suntans. Yeah. Because obviously they've been, been in the, in the desert. <laughs> Hanging around trees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, for the reasons I was saying before, that that kind of, it's a, that transitional period. And actually this, this magazine, there's a lot of polarity. You know, there's there a lot really of pop, is. but there's yeah. also... Some rock in there. There's some indie stuff. It's it's really quite mixed up. So, I think it appealed for that reason. Looking at the cover, we've got uh, Pet Shop Boys, 
communards, you two obviously, wet, 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 Tapao, Sting and Black. And on the posters, uh, posters Madonna, George Michael, Morton Harkett, off of AHA, Banana Rama, Rick Astley and The Cure. So it would have cost you 48 pence. Opening it up on the contents page, in terms of songs, lyrics, we've got uh, Living in a Box, The Communars, Juice and Mary Chain, Tapao, Sting, Scarlet Fantastic, Marillion, The Smiths, White Snake, The Christians, Heartbeat. <laughs> Janet Jackson, Brian Ferry, Cliff Richard and George Harrison. So we get into uh, into bits and uh, there's there's a lot going on in, in bits in this issue. Three stories jump out straight away with curiosity, are definitely not splitting up. Are level 42, no more. And then the Smiths, what the joggings is going on. So the Smiths are already... Um, Gone. They were history by then, but they're just clearing up some points here because there's a new single coming out, some reissues. They're just clarifying a few points there. At level 42, half the band have quit, so they're kind of carrying on and trying to patch things together with two new members. And Curiosity are definitely not splitting up after the bass player had a bit of a bit of a hissy fit on stage in Japan. And uh, I think he was having a bit of a hard time by, by the sounds of it. Yeah. Because uh, he got uh, banned from, from driving uh, after being arrested for drunk driving and things like that. He wasn't handling the fame very well, I don't no, think. Had a bit but... of an Anton Deck moment there, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. And then there's George Harrison, the story so far, which is a little potted history. Yeah, the man just condensed that down to half a page, which is very good, really, isn't it? Yeah. Cause... Kind of almost dismissing the Beatles in <laughs> yeah. a page. Like the Beatles, they're not important. Yeah. They uh, welcome back wrinkly, they say, don't they? Yeah, well, you think about it, right? So, what is he there? He's going to be about 44 years old, something like that. And, and look at him. I mean, it, he's, he's lived a life. That photo of him, he looks way older than 44. He does. And, and the same in the, the video for Got My Mind Set On You. It's like, I'm now older than, than George Harrison is in this video here. And he's looking at least 10 years older than I am. <laughs> It must have been uh, something that they, uh, they had in the water when they were celebrities those days. Or possibly the drink and drunk, uh, drunken drinks. Drinking <laughs> drugs. Drunken drinks. Drinking drinks. <laughs> and then there's a fantastic competition win this massive arch as featured in Freddie Mercury's new video. So uh, Lord Frederick and Mercury and Montserrat Cabale uh, opera's Cumlius Diva, as I refer to her. <laughs> uh, they had the uh, the song Barcelona, and you could win <laughs> in this competition. It's probably the strangest prize I've ever seen in a smash it's actually. A 25-foot high arch that was featured in the video, and you can win it by uh, answering a question about opera. I'd love to know what happened to it, actually. I'd love to yeah. know who won it and what they did with it. Well, they do, and quite rightly, point out that um, before entering this competition, you may pause to consider where you will put this edifice should you win it. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way that they, um, that they helpfully give you arches to, you know, as examples of what arches might be if yeah. you didn't know what an arch looked like <laughs> and hadn't yet seen the video. Yeah. Marble arch, piffle. Arch of Triumph, weedy. <laughs> What's that? Arch of Titus, not much cop. Brandenburg Gate, pathetic. <laughs> Turning the page, we come on to the uh, bits concise history of the beard in rock. We've already mentioned George Harrison and he makes another appearance on this page, but there's some, there's some great ones. It says, um, many people think that George Michael invented the beard in rock for, as will be revealed below, he has had rather a lot of the things. However, he's merely one of a vast crowd of hirsute warblers who litter the glittering hallways of fame. Are you sitting comfortably? Then blitz will begin. And, uh, I mean, my, there's some great ones in here. My favourite one, I think, might be uh, Roy Wood. It's a 70s glam rocker, Roy Wood, the only man in the world with a beard all the way round his head. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great picture of him with a fantastic sort of 
grey and white sort of uh, spiky thing on top of his head. What's your favourite side? Did you have well, a particular Well, I've, I've got a few favourites, but I think is, is this is this the first time that the ZZ Top story appears about um, it could be actually, Frank yes. Beard being the only member of the band who doesn't have a beard. Yeah. Which is now like the one thing that everyone remembers about Everybody ZZ Top, but then it was yeah. probably a new fact, yeah. I like the dude from the Grumbleweeds, who, who, oh, looks, yes. who looks like he should really be presenting Rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was Noel Edmonds, to be honest. <laughs> Bit of David Bowie there, isn't there? Yeah, David Bowie was there. Uh, he was never very good at growing beards. I mean, he, he did it in the Baal TV play thing, and he did it for Tim Machine. Not very convincing, Dave. Um, just sitting above the, Dave there. Is it a dead caterpillar? Is it a piece of wonky crochet? It, is it the gateway to another dimension? <laughs> no, it's Mick Hucknall's attempt at a beard, which is it's barely even there. It's poor, that, isn't it? Yeah, and then we get a, a shot of George Michael's attempts at beards uh, throughout the years, and then Pepsi and Shirley. <laughs> with um, <laughs> added, added beardness. On the next page is a, a little thing on um, Iceland because of the sugar Yay! cubes. You mentioned the sugar cubes before. Birthday is still an amazing sounding thing, isn't it? Yeah, our, the, now, on, it on the, the playlist um, that, that we've put together for, for this edition is probably one of the standout songs because it just sounds so unlike anything else and so out of time that it, it doesn't feel like it's dated and it's great seeing the video as well because Bjork looks about 10 years old. I know, it's so insane, cute. isn't it? <laughs> her, her vocal is incredible in that song. And I love the way in the article here that they just, um, I mean, Icelanders come across as bonkers, don't they? I don't know whether it's because of the isolation and, you know, the, the fact that it says here that if you're Icelandic, you've got to be called an Icelandic name. There's the revelling in their Icelandicness. But I went to see them at Manchester oh. University. I think it was 88 or 89. And um, it was scary. They were very punk. It yeah. was very aggressive. It was the most injured I'd ever been at a gig because the mosh pit was unbelievably violent. My feet were black and blue afterwards. It was a fantastic gig. <laughs> Best time of my life. Oh, <laughs> to see the Sugar Cubes live. Yeah. Incredible. And Einar, the guy that used to do like this sort of shouty, shouty vocal, yeah. was just obscene. Yeah. You know, he, just, he shouted at the people in the crowd and spat at us and, you know, just really yeah. was was very kind of aggressive towards us. Like, yeah. Why have you come here? It's, yeah, it was a great gig there. <laughs> one of many great gigs during that period. I think it's interesting how the piece doesn't actually have that much to do with the sugar cubes. It's more about Iceland yeah. and, uh, uh, and amazing facts about, about the place. Uh, beneath that, it's a weird pop group called Big Pig, which is a, a pop group from Australia. Nothing really of any interest here, apart from the uh, running thing <laughs> of exactly. Rick Astley's uh, childhood song, Ruddy Big Pig. <laughs> And, uh, uh, which had been revealed in Smash It's possibly, yeah, it had been a few weeks before this because Rick had recently been number one. Uh, even more amazing still, Big Pig have never even heard of the song, Ruddy Big Pig, <laughs> the song Rick Astley wrote when he was eight or nine. I'm getting obsessed with this because we talked about it in the last episode, didn't we? Because there'd been a letter about it. 
And uh, I kind of vaguely remember it from the time that, yeah, it was a song that Rick had, had written and he couldn't remember the tune, but he remembered some of the words and it's the funniest thing. And and it becomes sort of part of a running joke through smashes. Yeah. Really big pig, you really know, turns pig. up quite a bit. Uh, oh, and then, t- oh, turning the page. Um, <laughs> Billy Idol wearing what can only be described as perv breeks, I think, is basically, <laughs> he's sat with like a, like a black, I don't know if it's a leather coat like a, or a long shirt. I don't know quite what it is. Some kind of coat, I think. And some PVC, would you call them tights? I suppose they're kind of like stockings. Long, long leather boots almost. Yeah. I, well, he's got boots and, and then he's got and leg warmers. Mm. And then but some sort of, I don't know quite what's going on. I don't want to look too closely, to be fair. And he's wearing, he's sat on a stool and he's wearing... A thong. a thong, basically. Yeah. And, it looks like a studied thong by the look of it. And, and with a, a, a naked torso and uh, upper Well, I was going to get to that. Yeah, yeah. I, I was trying to sk- skate around the issue a little bit. But yeah, basically, he's naked apart from this thong and these weird boots. So um, I'm trying to remember why he's wearing that. There's no reason for it, is it? It's just <laughs> just an excuse to print the photo. I can't work out either the, uh, the, the piece, whose point of view it's uh, written from. Hello. I'm a rubber perv breek, and it's not much of a life, I can tell you. You never know where you're going to end up. I've seen some pretty unsavoury sights in my time. Never been quite the same since <laughs> glimpsing Larry Blackman's codpiece, I can tell you. But this takes the biscuit. One moment, I'm hanging in a corner of Uncle Disgusting's total perv emporium, innocently minding my own business. The next, I'm gazing up at a pair of minuscule leather wife fronts on some geezer called Billy Idol, who's forgotten to put his verbal vest on needs a bit of therapy if you ask me i don't know maybe i'm getting a bit old for this perv lark <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you never got this in the enemy did you like a column no. written by a pair of pervy trousers yeah and then we we have a, an interview with colin vernkum of black and this is a bit of a snooze fest this one isn't it it's a little little dull. basically he's traveling around um europe it's a 24-hour jaunt around europe with colin vernkum as he visits various capitals and mimes in TV studios to, I think he had a multitude of singles out in different countries. He he talks about having about four different singles out in Europe all at the same time. So I think his life was basically landing in one country, going to TV studio, being told which single he had to mime to, doing that, and then jetting off somewhere else. And he doesn't come across as very happy, does he? Nah. (laughs) It's not a wonderful life. It's not at all. I was going to say that. Beat you to it. Do you want to say it anyway? Let's pretend I didn't say it. He's not having a wonderful life. He isn't. He isn't. <laughs> Wish I'd have thought of that. <laughs> and then to our first two-page spread of the magazine and the uh, the delightful Carol Decker from Tapau, who were actually at number one with China in your hand when this issue of Smash Hits was uh, in your news agents. Anybody want to uh, kick us off with Carol here? It was Vicky McDonald did the piece with Carol Decker and it just seems like a lot of fun because Carol's really up for it. She knows what the kids want. They want stories about being sick in a cowboy boot, so they get that. Drinking sometimes makes me terribly sick. There's a lot of stories about drinking, aren't there, in, yes. in this issue, particularly in this, uh, this interview with Carol. I've fallen asleep with my head down a toilet many a time, and Ronnie, who's out of the band, her boyfriend, has helped me throw up into a bucket. When I was younger, I threw up into this guy's brand-new cowboy boots on our first date. I thought I'd never see him again, but we ended up engaged for a while. <laughs> Don't know how that happened, but <laughs> I'm trying to cut down on the drinking now because life is getting to be a bit of a blur. 
she's really living the pop life, isn't she? Uh, and she's had quite a crazy time. She's talking about things that she did at school. She was uh, on an art foundation course in Shrewsbury, and she painted a bedroom with her eyes shut while she was doing that. Bizarrely. Uh, <laughs> Um, and uh, it says, you used to get these arty-farty teachers. You could put your finger in mud and smear it on the paper and they'd go, hmm, I can see what you're trying to say, Carol. Once we were blindfolded and told to paint our bedrooms. I was saying practical things like, but I can't find the paint. And the tutor said, no, feel your room. I want your feelings. So, of course, it was like a bloody chimp's tea party. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, there's a really funny bit as well where she names and shames like her old school bully. She talks about going to a strict grammar school called Wellington Girls High School. It says you had to wear a beret. And I remember one horrible prefect called Wendy Powell. Print her name because she was an old cow. (laughs) Pinned me up against the wall while her cronies rammed my beret on my head. It's lovely to see all the girls who hated me being so rampantly jealous of my success now. I hope they're reading this. I met one the other day. She kept telling me how lovely I looked in my pictures and how I've grown into my face. What a cow! So Carol's really using this opportunity of a pop stardom to uh, have a bit of uh, revenge. Well, kind of following on from that, she says that she didn't have a boyfriend until she was 19. And she says, still, all the girls who had 36 busts when they were 14, it's all around their knees now. Ha ha. (laughs) And when I see what some of the people I fancy don't like nowadays. (laughs) (laughs) See, I I had quite a thing for Carol Decker, though. Did you? Back in the day, I did. Yeah. What yeah. was it? Was it her hair or her I, personality? Well, I didn't really know much about the personality, so I guess it would have been the hair, yeah. And, and I was quite jealous of what, what's the guy in the band who she went out with? Was it Ronnie? Ronnie. Ronnie, Roy. Yeah, him. I was quite quite jealous of him. But um, he, he gets a, a, another mention here uh, in the piece uh, when she's talking about that she used to dance around a handbag in the nightclubs in, in Shrewsbury. And she says that, I'm afraid I come from the dancing round your handbag era. In fact, the other night, my boyfriend said I was moving so badly on stage that he felt like giving me a handbag to dance around. <laughs> <laughs> And, of course, he's got to be careful because she's a short-tempered bitch, according to uh, what it says here in the article. Doesn't she throw some stuff at him? Yes. I love him, but we fight a lot. Fortunately for him, I'm a bad aim. A couple of window panes have suffered. Instead, I'll throw whatever's closest to hand, especially if it's something he treasures. Like the bust in the video. Oh. The china in her hand. Exactly. she throws. <laughs> I loved that moment. Yeah. That, was, that was the best moment in the video. Is he the guy... That looks half man, half alpaca. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very good description. Thank you. It's all about the hair, isn't it, Tapao? Yeah. <laughs> Marillion. Oh, my Warm, word. wet circles, which I thought was about somebody wetting themselves. But... I just thought it was really salacious. <laughs> but I don't want to think about fish and warm, wet circles. Just the two things together, just that idea. Yeah, really well, incongruous. I, th- I think it's the uh, when you've had a, a beer in a pub and then you pick it up and it, it's that, yes, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so don't let your imagination go too far there, Cal. No. Does that no. help you at all? It, it does help me, okay. yes. Yeah, but it's yeah. better than calling it Fisher's Ring Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have bought that 12 inch. But again, the lyrics. <laughs> It's just so convoluted and... It's, it's very like, sixth-form po- poet, isn't it? Yes. Very ponderous. Should, go on, pick out a couple of favourite lines there, Kath. Oh, hang on. Um, 
I saw teenage girls like gaudy moths, a classroom's shabby butterflies, flirt in the glow of stranded telephone boxes. Planning white lace weddings from smeared hearts and token proclamations rolled from stolen lipsticks. Is there, it's well deep in it. Is there a chorus? <laughs> That's the chorus. <laughs> I think the chorus is in a warm wood circle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like a mother's kiss on your first... Oh, God, it just goes yeah. on and on. There's loads of it. Wipe it up, mate, and move on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Give us a jiffy cloth and uh, let's, let's get rid of your warm, wet circle fish. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we to our, our cover stars, you two. And uh, let's see. Ooh, four pages they, yeah. get, they get there. What do we pick out from, from this? Thing? Well, it's unusual. In, you know, the cover, they're all looking in different directions. So you get the sense of four individuals. And, and they've all been interviewed by Chris Heath, but individually. So you get yeah. like a bigger one with Bono, as you'd expect. And then kind of a third of a page each with uh, Adam Larry and The Edge. I mean, I'd seen you two on the Joshua Tree tour earlier on in this year, I think in about the, when was it I did write down? 3rd of June, 1987 at the NEC mm-hmm. in Birmingham. And I, as I was saying before, this was the reason I bought Smash It's because it had you two. Although I think I was starting to go off them a little bit. I loved Joshua Tree and I loved everything that had come before that. But I think Rattle and Hum era, I was starting to be a bit, oh no, a bit too worthy. They'd gone from being quite exciting, sort of new wavy, punky, quite strident types to then just being a bit bit boring, <laughs> you know. And a they, bit rhythm and blues. Yeah, so they were, they were starting to kind of, uh, for me, go a bit down the dumper. So Bono, we, we learn about Bono's um, childhood. I mean, a lot of it is about um, his childhood here, isn't it? I think pretty yeah. much the whole, the whole piece. Um, talks about him losing his mum at quite an early age. I think was he about 14 or something when he lost his mum? And then he obviously had quite a few sort of behavioural problems, didn't he? Again, we were talking about Tapao earlier on and Carol Decker hurling things at her boyfriend and um, Bono throws a kitchen knife at his dad and his dad had to duck and the uh, kitchen knife stuck in the kitchen door behind him and him sort of throwing dog shit at a teacher, didn't he, and, and stuff, and that's all in there. The bit that stuck out to me was that he made friends with a bee. Oh, I missed that. <laughs> How could you miss that? <laughs> did I, how did I miss that? I don't know. Bono and the Bee sounds like Bono a kid's the, book. Yeah. yeah, Bono and the Bee. The man that put the bee into Bono. Yeah. And it wasn't Sting. Hey! Oh. hey. Come on. That came later. Well done. Well done. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, quite a, quite a difficult school days, but then obviously Larry puts a, an advert up at school. I guess things kind of work out better from... This bit made me laugh where it talks about him getting a job as a petrol pump attendant. It says he, he took this job and he had a theory that being in the quiet hours, he'd write songs. As luck would have it, it was when the worldwide oil crisis erupted. We had these queues for miles and the cars just kept coming, so I quit. <laughs> wasn't the job he was hoping yeah, for. Yeah. Got a job, I don't want to do the job. <laughs> yeah, and then it talks a lot about their um, Christian beliefs, Um doesn't go into sort of great detail about it but obviously it was a very sort of intense and, and privately held strong beliefs that they had and there was a group called the the shalom shalom group the shalom the shalom mm. group yeah and it was talking about them almost kind of quitting music altogether and getting very close to that point but not quite and then obviously as we know because they're still with us now they, they yep. just carried on and on and on and on and on. You, you two incorporate. And on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but the, well, the odd one out in the band is is Adam Clayton, who doesn't hold these religious beliefs, and he was feeling kind of very estranged from the rest of the band. And this is mentioned here. 
and how things nearly all kind of fell apart, but they decided to carry on. But it's more of a profile than that. There's no fresh interview material being used here. It's no. just sort of like, you know, you two had obviously been you know, a massive news in 87, um, three or four really big singles out that year. Um, and I, I was, I was well into them as well. And what I liked about that, as I was saying earlier, I was finding out that bands had really interesting songs on the B-sides and all the singles from the Joshua Tree had songs that weren't on the album. And they, you know, there were two uh, songs on, uh, on on the B-sides of each of those singles. So I was well into that and always remembered them fondly. And then a few months ago, I got to thinking about these songs again. Yeah. I have a hard time with you 2 now. Yeah, I stuck with them for quite a few years, but I do have a hard time now. It's mostly Bono's voice, mostly Bono. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I went back and revisited all these B-sides. Oh, they're not very good. Are they not? There's a couple of good ones, but apart from that, they you know, you can hear microphones being dropped and uh, <laughs> wrong notes being dropped, you know, flying about everywhere. And they're just kind of almost like we're jamming this song. Oh, let's stick that on the B-side. This will do kind thing. of thing. Yeah. Whereas I <laughs> dedicated years and many, many pounds to tracking down all of U2's singles. Okay. Right from the, the first EP in 1979 right. up to, this would have been in the late 90s when I was, you know, I stuck with them that long. Oh, you stuck with that them a long, longer time than um, I did. Finding all, all these singles and yeah. spending a pretty penny. Yeah. I started with the Joshua Tree and worked my way backwards they really weren't on my radar until then. Okay. So this is pretty current in, in my understanding of the band. I do like this interview because I think it's just before they lost all sense of modesty, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. before they became huge big stars. And it's nice to see Bono's eyes because, yes, yeah. you know, he, no he just, yeah. No, I'd rather have the sunglasses. No, <laughs> and you get, you get a sense of every member of the band in this. I really mm. like that, that, that they do focus on them as individuals. And the fact that they all ended up at the same school. And of course they're going to talk about religion because it's Ireland. Yeah. Mm. You know, and it's so pertinent for them to be talking about that with all the troubles. I mean, they're right at this time, aren't they? When it, it couldn't be obscured for them. It, it was there. They yeah. lived that life. Um, but yeah. I, I didn't go any further than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you were saying about uh, it, it was the time when there was still a bit of modesty about them. I suppose Joshua Tree was the album that really broke them in America, wasn't it? Yeah. And this was not long after that. So they were still in that first flush. But I guess, yeah, after that, when they went all rattle and hum and were rediscovering the blues and recording with B.B. King and, and trying to find themselves musically... That's when I think they got a bit up their own arses. Oh, and... I, I bloody loved that at the time, though. Yeah, and that, oh, and that's, yeah, that's yeah. when I formed my band, and we'd we'd watch because uh, we used to rehearse in the um, bass player's garage. So we'd watch Rattle and Hum while we we're having a break or something like oh, okay. that. And then we'd all run to the garage and try and do Where the Streets Have No Name, which sounded horrendous, of course, because you know we haven't got you know <laughs> millions of pounds worth of gear to uh, to draw upon. You know, I'm just playing a guitar through an old reel-to-reel tape recorder, and the, the drummers playing biscuit tins and things. <laughs> So it didn't sound quite the same, but you know that got us fired up. Yeah, so I do, I do remember you two fondly, but I can't, I can't really go there. No, no. Nah. I listened to you to um, Joshua Tree again the other day, just because of because of this, and I, I got the CD out. Yeah, it's still, it's you know, it's got a little place in my heart. But, but yeah, there are parts of it that still yeah. sound really good, and when you listen to the the playlist. 
as well, or when I was listening to it, and In God's Country yeah, came on, because that's that's actually. a song that was in the charts at that time. Uh, an American import, kids. <laughs> it wasn't released <laughs> in the UK. I got my copy from Our Price in Sheffield. Uh, so that, that was one that was kind of like in, in the lower regions of the charts. And when that comes on, I, I get it. I, yeah. I know why they were such a big band for me then because amidst all the drum machines and all the horns and synths and all that kind of thing, you too come and it's like, it's like the light suddenly shines in yeah. and there's this whole different thing. It's a big epic sound and it's got yeah. that tinny drum machine kind of thing going yeah. on. And-, and, and, and it just, it just feels so, so different to everything else that was going on at the time, even though there were loads of bands ripping off U2, with The Alarm, who were in this one, oh, Rain in yeah. the Summertime. It's, you know, it's kind of U2 by numbers. <laughs> um, but yeah, it just feels yeah like, like this bit of light that just suddenly comes in, just this breath of air mm. amidst all the, all the synthesizers and, and drum machines. So I, I understand why they were a big band for me and why I still keep going back and like, yeah. oh, oh, not <laughs> nah. so sure. But I get it. And then we get to the personal file of the communards, Richard Coles and Jimmy Somerville, and probably my favourite piece in the whole mag, um, Richard Coles especially. But there's a weird thing going on, because typical Smash It's questions, you get, you know, first crush, first record ever bought, first concert. And it turns out that both Richard and Jimmy Somerville have the same first crush. Captain Richard says, uh, Captain James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise, he was just so handsome and masterful and so calm and in control. And uh, Jimmy Somerville says, well, I don't know whether it was Captain Kirk or Lieutenant Uhura. (laughs) (laughs) I think probably Captain Kirk awakened tingles up my back. But yeah, Richard Coles absolutely stands out on this one. He talks about his first concert, which was actually um, Beethoven's Symphony No. 7. at the Royal Albert Hall uh, when he was eight years old. But then a few years later, says his first pop concert was the Sex Pistols in the county cricket ground in Northampton before they were famous. I didn't go for the music. I went because I really fancied this boy who went there. I don't remember the Sex Pistols, but I do remember the boy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they ask him, has Bono ever told you any good jokes? Who's Bono? Oh, him. Does he tell jokes? It doesn't strike me as a very humorous person, but I don't know him at all, so... (laughs) (laughs) What's the worst thing you've done after a couple of drinks? And he says, I think being sick over my great-aunt Phyllis at my cousin's wedding. I was about 12, and unfortunately they let me have some champagne. Poor Aunt Phyllis. I lurched over to her and she was trying to keep me away, but I was sick over her top coat dress. It was rather soiled, unfortunately. She never, ever spoke to me again after that. I can't really say I blame her. <laughs> Poor great Aunt Phyllis. Uh, any responses from uh, Jimmy Somerville? His, his ones aren't as entertaining, I don't think. I think Richard Coles is uh, clearly a, a great storyteller. They ask him what's the worst thing he's done after a couple of drinks, and he says, ooh, <laughs> I've honestly done so many dreadful things, I can't even try to recollect. It's a bit like uh, Carol Decker Carol again, Decker, isn't it? You yeah. know, like, um, they, they certainly don't shy away from asking pop stars what they've done when they've had a bit too much fizz. He says, I always get in trouble after a few drinks. He says, if Richard sees me in a bar and he thinks I've had one too many, he won't even talk to me. <laughs> so that tells a few stories there, doesn't it? <laughs> he says, but now I drink Guinness and for the past few years I've been really good. I usually get overexcited when I drink and I always get in trouble. And then Richard interjects. He says, Jimmy, you always cause trouble. 
so then Jimmy says, so I can't even think of the worst thing. It would be censored anyway. So, yeah, I think there's a few stories lurking there that, uh, that don't come out. Sounds like it. Uh, Jimmy's first concert, he says the B-52s, but he says, well, I saw the Bay City Rollers before that in a carpet showroom, which they were opening, but they weren't really singing, which was sad. His uh, response to the, has Bono ever told you any good jokes? I think Bono's a bit of a joke, but then Larry Mullen, that's another story. I've got a poster of him up in my kitchen. I'm not a fan of you two, but I just think he's so wonderful. (laughs) I Uh, think this pair would be great on a night out. You know, they're such polar opposites. And you've got Jimmy that that doesn't read. He says he never takes books, he takes his Walkman. Whereas Richard's, you know, getting ploughed into some great tome. They just are so much themselves and exactly as you imagine them to be. I'd love to know if they're still friends now. I hope they still are. Yeah. I imagine they are. We come next, after skipping a few more pages, to Blue Mercedes. Anyone remember them? No. (laughs) I Want to Be Your Property was their kind of one big top 40 hit. Also number one in the US dance chart, and they had a Top of the Pops appearance around this time as well. So Vicky McDonald um, does a one-page interview with them. And the other night, feeling at a bit of a loose end, I thought, oh, the lead singer's got an unusual name. I'll see if I can get in touch with him somehow. Turns out I found his email address, emailed him. Last thing at night, I thought I'd send a speculative email. And uh, God bless him, David Titlow got back to me the next morning. I had a thing, yeah, what do you want to know? So I sent him some questions and uh, <laughs> and asked him uh, a few things. I asked him, uh, I said, uh, how much of a big deal was the first piece in Smash It's? Was it a goal you'd set yourselves? And he said, it was a massive deal. I used to love Smash It's. And getting inside the pages was the print version of getting on top of the pops. I was a complete fame vampire and this seemed like the first step. Asked him if there were any nerves in doing the article, and he said, yeah, I was very overexcited, hence the verbal diarrhoea in the interview, probably drove the journo nuts. And you do, you get a sense of that, because he seems, seems very, very excitable, like a, a toddler that's had too many Skittles. And then there's a really bizarre bit, which I wanted to ask him about. So kind of halfway through the article, it says, mystifyingly, they describe the sound of I want to be your property as street Latin wolf, and that's wolf with two Fs. Duncan, who's the keyboard player in the band, explains, It's based on a dream I had. I dreamt we were in New York and I saw a poster on a wall saying, Blue Mercedes, the new street Latin wolf, Miguel Miller and Puig Titlow. It was like a Latin American group and there was a picture of David in a green satin tuxedo. It's got to be the truth. I couldn't make up something so ridiculous. People are even arguing about the spelling now. Please note, it's W-O-L-F-F. And then... (laughs) And then it says, I remember Duncan saying I should get the green suit made up. So it says, says Dunk, it should be says David. But I declined and got the shorts instead. Ha ha. So I asked about this because I thought, surely this is, this is a made up thing. But there's no reason why you would lie about this all these years later. But I said, what's the street Latin wolf thing? A real dream or just a good story? And he says, that was actually for real. I remember Duncan the day after he had the dream and he was very excited about it. He gave us our own musical genre to spout on about. <laughs> So, I mean, that's kind of quite an interesting thing, that, isn't it? You know, that they had their own genre from a dream. And, yeah, it was uh, was a true thing. And he was just talking, uh, David, about his shorts there. And he's got a pair of shorts that say funk on one leg and ass on the other. He's got these shorts made up and he says, I've got 10 pairs in various colours. They all say funk ass at the moment, but we might be appearing on Blue Peter. So we'll have to change it to funk body or something. 
And then I didn't ask him about that, but then he remembered. And the next day he, uh, he got back to me and said, I remember now that we did in fact have to change the funk-ass lettering on my shorts for our Blue Peter appearance. <laughs> a special pair were commissioned with Blue and Peter on each leg. Far less threatening for the pre-Watershed audience. So <laughs> there we go. I also asked, oh yeah, and then it says at the end of the article, what kind of fans do they want? And Dave says, anyone, grannies, winos, bag ladies, we don't care at all. So I said, um, at the end, you said you'd be happy with grannies, winos or bag ladies. How did that go? And he says, ha ha, well, it was a fun ride for a few years, but a few bad decisions and the madness of the 80s scuppered us in the end. We were probably lucky not to end up as winos or bag ladies. So there we go. I think they, they enjoyed living the pop dream for a short while anyway. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great piece to do. Come it's across very having, funny. Having a, a lot of uh, lot of energy to, to go around. I like the bit where Duncan's talking about before they got famous and he was making ends meet by being a, a pianist in a, in a restaurant in London. And he says, Les Dawson was a regular. He sat right next to me one evening and burped all the way through the meal. <laughs> That would put you off your, your stroke, wouldn't it, yeah. when you were playing in a swanky yeah. restaurant? Yeah, doing a you know, nice bit of uh, lounge piano music and you've yeah. got Les Dawson burping away. <laughs> well, I looked um, Duncan up as well and he's a, a jazz pianist now and he does like kind of, uh, he puts his own albums out, quite, a, quite smooth jazz instrumental stuff. But yeah, it's, you know, nice enough sounding stuff, but yeah. yeah, it's a very funny interview. I think they they cram a lot into this page, don't they? Yeah, they give they very good value. Did you watch them on Top of the Pops? Yes. They just look like sweet boys. Um, I mean, the bouncing that's going on. He's yeah. like Tigger, isn't he, the, the singer? And um, they look like six formers. Yeah, <laughs> just got on there by accident. Or yeah, <laughs> in their basketball around. gear on the way back to the changing rooms. <laughs> Sweet boys. Yeah, no, they're all like they're having a having a lot of fun with that crazy double standing up keyboard. Yeah, it's thing a weird thing. Well, yeah, it? But it's good. It's good to have a little gimmick, isn't it? As a, yes. as a band, you know. And, yeah, I don't um, remember anything about them. Though. No, <laughs> unfortunately, no. And, and listening to that song, first of all, I thought I don't remember putting ABC on the playlist. I had exactly the same mm. thought. Uh, yeah. And it does say in, in there that, um, that the, you know, people have compared them to ABC, and they don't mind that because Let's Kind of Love is one of their favourite albums. Quite right too. One last question I asked him as well. I asked him if he was a reader of uh, Smash Hits. I said, it seems like you probably were, just because some of the language they use is very Smash Hits. And uh, he says, yes, I was an avid reader. My cousin Mark actually used to write and illustrate the early Hits comic strip, The Adventures of Zitty Ben, which I don't remember at all. I actually remember visiting once in the Carnaby Street office. Very exciting. So thank you, David. So yeah, uh... thank you, David. I really appreciate you getting in touch. And uh, nice to have a little insight into what it was actually like to be in Smash Hits. Let's have some Pet Shop Boys. Oh, this is a great article. Get Smart, which was the part of the magazine where the pop kids could write in with any burning issues or questions that they needed answering in the days before the internet. And you didn't really have any other way sometimes of finding out the answers to your burning questions. So it's a Pet Shop Boys special. And there's some fantastic questions in there. Cass, should we start with you? Have you got any particular questions in there that caught your eye any funny things yes uh, there's somebody writes in and and asks whether he saw neil tennant in liberties in london <laughs> i mean this is the burning question I, I guess it's a kind of i've seen neil tennant in real yeah. life he, well, want, he wants to have I it saw. verified yeah. so that he can talk about it uh, and yes indeed it was him but I, th- I thought that was quite amusing and random. It's a very specific uh, inquiry, isn't it? That? Yeah. <laughs> and then at the bottom of the uh, of the page, the, you've got the Pet Shop Boys 
actually modelling in smash hits. Yes. With I- t-shirts and uh, and looking really young and completely unself-conscious. From 1983 smash hits yearbook. Yeah, right. before they were just the kings of cool. We've got them there grinning inanely. <laughs> and it's... it's- <laughs> It's so unpet shop boys. It feels wrong somehow, doesn't it? It does because everything's so particular with them. Yeah, their image is very carefully created and here they are just grinning away or pulling silly faces. Any questions there that caught your eyes? Well, no, the liberties thing was the thing that stood out to me. And it's that um, they actually missed, they they did agree to meet each other in the shop and missed each other (laughs) and ended up meeting an hour later. And it's how Neil is very specific with the detail on that as well. It feels like he's some sort of like, you know, diarist or something like that, consulting it. Oh, yes, well, I did, yes. And then, uh, well, he wasn't there. Yes, I I thought that, yeah. It's very very specific on the the time and the place. And there's a funny, another funny question on the next page that I really liked. It says, Dear Get Smart, I have some questions for you about the Pet Shop Boys. Is Neil Tennant taking helium to make his voice higher? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, no. So you can imagine rolling his eyes at this. No, says Neil. He definitely doesn't take helium or anything to make his voice higher. And there's a lot of questions about clothes that the boys are wearing and the sunglasses and so on. And stuff about lyrics as well. Um, There's three questions about the song... Is it called Paninaro? Yeah. Yeah, on the dis- uh, from the disco the um, album. That's right, yes. And the, the lyrics about Armani, Armani, Versace, Cinque. Because obviously that wasn't... The lyrics weren't in smash hits for that one, so people wouldn't have known what nope. it said. And people maybe didn't know what Armani was then, I guess. Yeah, it wasn't a single, but um, best track on the album, that one. Yes, mm. for sure. And then we've got a discography. Oh, I loved the discography. Yeah, because that's yeah. geeky, nerdy <laughs> yeah, detail, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Look at the B-sides. <laughs> All the B-sides. It's got all about the different versions. You know, it tells you about the 7-inch double packs and the 12-inch double sleeve and if it's got the same tracks and all that kind of thing. And it talks about the early singles as well that they released before they were famous. So it's a really good little primer, this, into the world of Pet Shop Boys, isn't it? And and again, you know, sort of very, very amusing and, and just lovely questions from the fans. I really enjoyed that article. It feeds into the sort of the whole Pet Shop Boys geekery you know, that you can really be into the Pet Shop Boys in a very deep way because they give you the opportunity. You know, they release different versions of songs, you know, a bit like New Order did. You'd get remixes and this detail works for me. Yeah, you like him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just on the letters, because we mentioned Ruddy Big Pig before. And <laughs> I've got to mention it again because there's, there's a little letter in here. It says... Um, Dear Black Type, I noticed that in a recent issue of Smash Hits, a young chap called Rick Astley talks about a song he once wrote called Ruddy Big Pig. I wonder if by any chance this could be the same ditty as Ruddy Big Pig, a record released back in 1954 when I myself was, let us say, slightly more au fait with the world of popular music. I've tried looking everywhere for a copy of this original Ruddy Big Pig, but alas, no luck. Oh well, never mind, Dad, as some of your younger readers might say, if you do happy to come across a copy of Ruddy Pig Pig, as I say, it was released in 1954. And the artist's name is J.P. Hartley. (laughs) (laughs) Thanking you in anticipation, J.B. Hartley, the old cottage, Mr. Kettering. Which, for some of our younger listeners who may not know the reference to J.P. Hartley, he was um, a guy that... Uh, there was a very popular advert for Yellow Pages at the time and he was trying to track down an old book he'd written, wasn't he, on fly fishing. Fly fishing, fishing by J.P. Yeah, Hartley. and uh, he was ringing up oh, all no, the... Was it J.R. Hartley? I think it might have been J.R. Oh, yes, Hartley. you might be right, actually. Yeah. I, think it, I think it was J.R. Oh, Hartley, Maybe yes. J.P.'s the brother. Uh, yes, that could be it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just... Any reference to Ruddy Big Pig, I'm all over it these days, I tell you.
Now we get to more Christians on the pages of Smash Hits. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's settle um, for this one. Let's have a look at the, uh, the headline here. Mm. We think that millions of people in this country are going to turn back to God. Heartbeat are seven fanatical Christians who call themselves missionaries, believe that homosexuals are sinners, and intend to convert us all to their way of thinking. They're also a pop group with a record in the charts. William Shaw investigates. Now, I know, again, no recollection of this. They did have a making an appearance on Top of the Pops. You find that on the video playlist. It's not on Spotify. You'll be glad to hear. And I would have been watching Top of the Pops every week at this point. Never saw, well, don't remember this one I at all. It's been it. blanked from my memory. But in a, an issue that has already mentioned religion, when this comes along, it just seems to strike such a a sour note, I think, in the context of pop music. And the, the piece begins, most pop stars we know are a rebellious bunch of people, forever shocking the older generation with their goatish antics, getting squiffy, swilling champagne in posh nightclubs, lobbing TVs out of hotel windows, having affairs with billions of boyfriends slash girlfriends, etc., etc. So it comes as a bit of a shock to find that a group called Heartbeat have just pounced into the charts while telling us that they're trying to put God back onto the agenda in Britain. Heartbeat, you see, are not your commoner garden pop group, they believe that God has given them a bit of a mission. In fact, they sometimes refer to themselves as missionaries. They believe that the traditional church has let Britain down and they disapprove of premarital sex. They announce that homosexuality is a sin. And in brackets, this is a quote from uh, one of the members of the band. A third of all vicars are gay and it's terrible. And they claim that when they play their gigs, they can sometimes heal members of the audience who are feeling poorly. Some would call them religious oddballs. <laughs> Um, they speak to uh, somebody from the band, a guy called Ray Goud or Ray Goud, something like that. Gaudi, yeah, yeah, Gaudi. What's it all about? Says Ray. Well, we believe that God looks down upon the land and He sees us like lost children, and as a father, He's crying and telling the nation to come back to Him. We think millions of people in this country are going to turn back to God, and it just felt so so out of step with not just the rest of this issue, but with Smash It's as a whole. Yeah. That, like you, Gav, getting in touch with um, David from Blue Mercedes, I, I sent an email to William Shaw. Uh, these days, a very successful crime fiction writer. And I thought, you know, he's going to be too busy to, to answer my appealing little question about something that he wrote in 1987. But no, he emailed back. It was almost instantaneous, <laughs> I have to say. Um, so I asked him if he remembered anything about the piece because I felt that, that there might be more to this than meets the eye mm. and you know, maybe something else went on that, that he might remember. This is the reply that I got from, from William. Jesus, I'm actually really ashamed of that article. I was being so reasonable. What was I thinking of? We had a kind of Rethian duty to report everything that was a hit, even when it was shoehorned into the top 40 by evangelicals. I should have been much braver in calling it out as a misuse of the airwaves. Thing is, I don't really remember it at all, for reasons that are probably obvious. I've totally wiped it from my memory. At the time, we were pretty industrial about what we were doing. We'd all be doing several interviews a week, and even the great ones I barely remember. <laughs> so he's he's completely wiped it from his memory. And I think he's been a little harsh on himself, because how else were Smash It's... Oops, I'm just chucking magazines everywhere. <laughs> how else were Smash It's going to deal with that? 
and I don't think it was necessarily their place to be to be calling it out. I think it's it was probably their duty if they were writing about this band to just kind of print the facts almost and let the readers yeah. make up their own minds. And I think that is that is the right way to to go about it. So William, if you're listening, don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> yeah. Um and I did think, you know, something like this has got to have caused a stir with the readers. Uh, so I went to my uh, Smash It's archive, stored behind the sofa in my <laughs> magazine <laughs> files. So I had to shove the sofa out across the living room and pulled the following issue out of the box. And indeed, the first three letters to Black Type are about this piece. The first one, quite a long one. Um, Dear Black Type, what? A teacher writing to Black Type? Wonders will never cease. The subject of my letter? The pop group Heartbeat. I was a bit surprised by the article William Shaw wrote. He gave the impression he thought they were weirdos. Hmm. I was fortunate to meet the band recently when they were interviewed on a local radio station. Weirdos? I think not. Granted, talking about prayer and God is unusual, but surely that doesn't suggest they may have dodgy religious views. Okay, so they take the teachings from the Bible about homosexuality and premarital sex literally. But does that make them dodgy? It seems to me that rejecting bits of the Bible, like certain cults do, puts people on dodgier ground. As for things like being against premarital sex, well, so am I. My wife and I refrain from it, and we both testify to the fact that we are glad we waited and gave ourselves to no one else. It made the gift of each other that much more precious when we got married. It also helps to prevent AIDS. <laughs> oh, my word. If heartbeat are dodgy, then it is about time the sleep-in-a-pew churches woke up to the fact that God is alive and not dead and become dodgy like heartbeat. In your interview with Bono of U2 in the same issue, he says there is a radical side to Christianity I am attracted to. So a heartbeat. So why the weirdo bit for them, but not Bono, which is actually quite you know, a fair point in, in a way. But Bono doesn't go on about his uh, religious views in the same way that heartbeat do. Personally, I find heartbeat's attitude much more refreshing than Carol Decker of Tapau, also interviewed in the same <laughs> issue, who seems to have spent half her life throwing up in a toilet. Yours, Dr. Nigel Webster, Ranley School, Bracknell. There's uh, another couple of letters on this. One that doesn't really make any sense, but the final one uh, on this subject. Dear Black Type, if heartbeat represents God, then God is a narrow-minded bloke. Katie Barrett, P.S. I love everyone. Aww. Yeah, so I think, I think <laughs> it, it was absolutely the, the, the right way to go to let the readers kind of make up the, their own minds and, and print those responses. I don't know what your thoughts are on this piece. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm with you, really. It's a, it's a praise song, and um, it seems unlikely to me that it would have yomped up the charts at this time, unless there was a very targeted set of people buying the, the single. Um, but, but then the fact that it, it, it does end up on top of the pops means that it does have to be reported. But is that sort of reflecting the demographic of smash hits? Fair enough, there must be Christian readers of Smash Hits. And maybe it's something that they would really appreciate being in this magazine. But I think the, the reporter's very careful in not really offering opinion, but allowing the band to speak for themselves. Mm. You know, the, the lyrics of the song are printed alongside and you can look at those and, and decide for yourself whether you think it's a, a pop song, I guess. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested to know who was buying the record because I don't imagine that many pop kids 
were. I mean, who knows? We don't know, do we? But um, yeah, I, I I agree with both you two. I, I think the way Smash It's dealt with it, you know, there's some pretty horrible views in here, but they don't kind of linger on them and they don't try and say this is right or wrong. They just report them. And I, and I would imagine that most people reading the magazine at the time would have just thought, oh, that's not very nice. And, you know, as the response from that letter showed, you know, just love everyone and, and this is quite bigoted, sort of. That's certainly how it comes across, you know. What would be really interesting would be, for a very articulate and incisive point of view on this, would be to interview Richard Coles about it. Yes, as who, a gay vicar. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I th- put them in a room together, <laughs> that, all that of would, these people, that would have been and really I, think, interesting. I think he would win. I yeah. think he would, yeah. 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 Interestingly, the song got to number 32 in the charts and stayed in, at that position for two weeks. And it was the second week of it being at 32 that he got on top of the pops. Oh, okay. So it hadn't gone up nor down. And normally when a song had done that in the charts, he wouldn't get on top yeah. of the pops. So some strings were definitely being pulled to get them on the show. Mm. God moves in mysterious ways. Yeah. So. <laughs> so we'll we'll leave heartbeat there. I yeah. Think. But also uh, thanks to William for being so quick uh, to responding to the email. And uh, yeah, don't be so hard on yourself. With it. <laughs> Skipping on a few pages, it's William Shaw again, visiting Sting at his house. His in Snoop Mansion. His Snoop Mansion, which is actually a terrace house in London somewhere. And again, like like a couple of other things in the mag, you just kind of think, what's this doing in here? Mm. Uh, there's, uh, I think he's struggling for things to say. So most of the piece is describing his house. Sting comes across as very kind of humourless. So there's very few bits that you can kind of pick out and have a giggle at. And I think, you know, William Shaw is thinking this as he's going along. So he asked Sting, when was the last time he popped down to Woolies to buy a single? Uh, And Sting says, I haven't done that for years, he admits, but my life is perfectly normal when I'm staying at home. I mow the lawn, I go to the pub across the road, I go to the betting shop. Do I ever win much? Well, once I had a really good year, about three years ago, I won an awful lot of money. Unfortunately, I lost it all the next year. So that's the most interesting thing. <laughs> yeah, that is the highlight, isn't it? Say, is that, that he, he nips across to the pub and he mows the lawn, but he doesn't go to Woolies. Um, and he's kind of, I think he's kind of on the defensive a little bit as well. He doesn't buy music anymore, though. That's the point, isn't it? He only listens to classical yes. music, mm. which I find bizarre, you know, because the single that that he's talking about, that that he's obviously advertising at the moment, is, is really quite shallow. Yeah. Mm. You know, the lyrics are awful and yeah. it's, it's just a pop song. And his house is described in quite minute detail and I, I imagine it to be a bit like the one in the... George Harrison video. <laughs> <laughs> I've always lived in terraced houses and this is a terraced house. Sting suddenly stops realising that calling his house a terraced house when it is probably worth several squillion pounds is a bit odd. Yeah, well, he laughs. It's an expensive terraced house, but it's still a terraced house. <laughs> He's just absolutely sticking to, you know, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a Geordie lad and I'm still living in a yeah. terraced house. Mm-hmm. He's a bit prickly, isn't he? And, yeah. you know, like you were saying before, say, it's... It's a bit dull and you wonder what it's doing in here. And it kind of fits in really with some of the previous articles. You've got the, the black uh, one earlier on and the U2 one, which is quite a serious piece, and this one. And then contrasting that, you've got the article on the Pet Shop Boys and Carol Decker and the Communards, which is more your standard frothy pop kind of fare. And so there's a real kind of dividing line between 
He's almost kind of Q kind of articles, really, aren't they? The, you know? I think that's that's exactly it. Q magazine had been going a year at this point, done by the same publishers. Some of the Smash It's people that we know and love are working on Q magazine. And when you look at the gallery of covers mm. from this point on for the rest of the 80s, this is the last time a rock band appears on the cover. So I think it for Smash It's, this is almost an end of an era and redefining their territory almost, distinguishing yeah, yeah. themselves from Q because you look at Q magazine from this month, there's some shared, I wouldn't necessarily say content, as we say these days, but there's some shared artists. Brian Ferry's in there, Sting's in there. You two are probably in there, yeah, aren't they? Uh, yeah, they'll be in there somewhere, and it's certainly been on, on the cover of Q earlier. And Black are very much year. the kind of band that would appear in yeah. Q. And I think a decision was clearly taken mm. to shift it away from that, get rid of the old duffers, and you know, let's concentrate on pop music. And from this point on, that's what Smash It's does. Reviews, singles. singles. Um, this is Richard Lowe taking a look at the singles in this fortnight. He picks out the communards for single of the fortnight, Never Can Say Goodbye, and uh, he predicts what they might go on to cover as well because obviously they had that massive hit with Don't Leave Me This Way. And he says, how about Dancing Queen? Yes, sir, I can boogie. You make me feel mighty real. Take good care of yourself. Um, the communards did actually cover Dancing Queen. Oh, right. They did it on uh, Friday Night Live, a live version on the show. It was never released. Oh, I've got right. it on a cassette somewhere. Though. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was that was funny that it was kind of like picking out songs that the communards could cover. And any singles jumping out to the either the review jumps out or even that you may have bought at the time. Um, the, the Smiths. Well, for most of the review, it's the Smiths, the Smiths, the Smiths. You know, just kind of a general, oh, no, they've split up, or oh, what are we going to do? And then at the end, but this is a rubbish song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it says it's the worst track on the album, which, I don't know, I, I would disagree myself, but... The video, though, is oh, worth mentioning yeah, yeah, yeah. because it is, it's so tongue-in-cheek. Oh, I'd like to think it's tongue-in-cheek. I think it is, yeah, it's um, very funny. You know, lots of little Morrissey lookalikes following him round on bikes, going to all the iconic Smith's places, you know, the Salford Lads Club. And it, it, it's so geeky and so brilliant. So, yeah, even if you don't like the song, the video is definitely worth watching. See, I wasn't fully aware of the Smith's world back then. Oh, OK. I liked them. Didn't even know that they'd split up and things like that. <laughs> so the video was kind of like, what's, what's all this about? And these places didn't really know Manchester, you know, yeah. till the side at Pennines. Ah. Um, so I didn't really know what, what was going on there. So it was years later before it had any kind of real significance uh, to me. Yeah, of course I've been in, uh, stood outside the Salford Lights Club door and had my photo taken. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it echoes of the South Bank show programme. Hmm. When the Smiths folded, Melvin Bragg got on the case and they did a, a, an hour-long programme about the Smiths, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, I think it was filmed while they were still together in the last few days, right. but then it came out after they'd split up, that's right. Right, which was superb. You know, I, yeah. I had a video of that. Everyone I knew did, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. There's uh, some of the good little reviews. I, it, LL Cool J. Now, I didn't know this song, Go Cut Creator Go, which is on the Spotify playlist and on the YouTube playlist. Richard Lowe, who reviews the singles, doesn't enjoy this song. He says, um, there's little snippets of that familiar old guitar riff that tends to kick off proceedings on those old 50s rock and roll records. There's no tune to speak of, and it's all a bit witless, graceless row, which a lot of people will pretend to like because it's fashionable to do so. 
And at the time, I probably wouldn't have liked it, but now I think this is a great song. I love it. It's great, isn't <laughs> it's it? Yes. Um, Bross are in there as well with When Will I Be Famous? Uh, well, boys, you really must be patient. You may be a trio of handsome young devils with rips in your jeans in all the right places, make a good poppy white funk music and generally fulfil all the requirements of the modern pop sensation. And even though your first single, I Owe You Nothing, was rather good and should have been a hit, if you follow it up with second-rate songs like this, it may not happen at all. Well, it did a few, a few months <laughs> yeah. later. Uh, finally broke into the charts, and then the sensation that we know as Bross was he, uh, was up on us. He kind of got that one a bit wrong, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. There's, there's two, actually. There's another one later on um, where there's a review of Faith, uh, George Michael. Yeah. And saying, yeah, six out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to because that's in the uh, album reviews. Take a look yeah. at those in a minute. But before that... Wet, 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 a review of their live show at the Hammersmith Odeon in London. And oh, uh, this funny. what the viewers said, uh, this is great, just catching <laughs> catching people as they're leaving the venue to get an opinion, uh, a little snap of them as well. Penny, 15, we're not really fans. Someone gave us free tickets, but it was good. Marty Pello, which one's that? The lead singer, oh, yeah, yeah, he's nice. Really good, nice looking, cool. <laughs> then her friend Sharon, also 15. The show was a bit short, and that bloke who was singing, what a lovely bottom. <laughs> and then the people under that, Karen, 18, boring, boring. I thought Marty Pillock's dancing was pathetic. He just made an idiot of himself, all those little girls screaming at him. I think he's got a horrible bum too, personally. It's all fat and pudgy. <laughs> Vanessa, her friend, also 18. Marty Pello is vile. Someone who loves himself, he's all teeth. I still like their music. But after seeing then Jericho, this lot are pathetic. <laughs> they've, got, they've got no go in them at all. I mean, talk about a, a terrible thing to say, you know, after seeing then Jericho, this lot are pathetic. I mean, that's the worst insult ever, isn't it? It really is. I question whether these really all did go into the gig, <laughs> all of these people, because not a lot of people seem to like them. But Ashley 17, it was a bit screamy bopperish. And Marty Pello's backside's awful. It really filled his jeans. Ugh. But I suppose all the little girls go mad over him. There's a lot of talk over his bottom, isn't there? There is. Yeah. More than his singing or anything else, really. <laughs> what about Marty Pello's bum? They moan about how many ballads are played mm. as well. I never thought of Wet 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 as a very ballady group, but apparently so. Yeah, and there's a little group of fans who've all got posters, T-shirts, things like that. Denise, 15. Holly, 15. Helen, 15. Cheryl, 16. All <laughs> jumping about and shrieking at the same time. Brilliant, amazing. Ooh, Marty. Ew. He's so cute. He's so lovely. His teeth, that smile, his hairstyle, the dancing, those eyes, all crinkly round the edges. His bum. His bum again. <laughs> it's like a boomerang, you know. It always comes back to you. Marty Pellow's bum keeps coming back. Bumberang. <laughs> I need to very, very quickly mention as well, in the Encyclopedia of Rock, there's a competition for a book called the Encyclopedia of Rock, and it mentions um, Spooky Tooth, Steel Eye Span, Electric Prunes, Vanilla Fudge, and it reminded me of, as a kid growing up reading Smash Hits, Mark Ellen and um, Tom Hibbert would often mention the Incredible String Band, an old kind of yeah. hippies band from the late 60s. And I, as a teenager, imagined that they were a made-up group. You know, I had no way of knowing they were a real band. And it was years later that I saw one of their albums. And I, 
Oh, that's the band that was always in Smash It. <laughs> so I guess lots of kids probably reading these, they'd think Spooky Tooth and, yeah. you know, Vanilla Fudge would be made up bands. But yeah, all real. And, you know, they were in there. So the album reviews, I've already mentioned the Brian Ferry album. He gets the highest rating here, nine out of ten. He, he wrote a lot of the songs on the album with Patrick Leonard, who was the guy who was working with Madonna as a songwriter and producer okay. at that time. And you listen to some of the songs on the album and they could have come straight off True Blue or Who's That Girl, just absolutely sounding like that. But I, I didn't spot that at the time. Like I said, my ears were blind to all that sort of thing. Your ears were blind? Yeah, my ears were blind, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, it was Bry and it was the new album and yeah. I loved it. Um, yeah, George Michael's Faith gets six out of 10. Aztec Camera, Love, six out of 10. UB40, the best of UB40, Volume 1, 9 out of 10. Shaking Stevens, reviewed by Tom Hibbert, gets shaky as a rating. <laughs> yeah, that's a really funny review yeah. by Tom Hibbert. He was uh, such a great writer. <laughs> so Tom writes, you can always depend on shaky, even if side one is a bit of a dud, featuring a couple of weedy ballads and the hoary old chestnut, what do you want to make those eyes at me for? And saved only by the barking mad majesty of a little boogie woogie, hem hem. <laughs> George Harrison appears again, his album uh, Cloud Nine, five out of 10, and Madonna's remix album, You Can Dance, nine out of 10. I think that pretty much brings us to the end of this issue of Smash It's George Michael on the back with his uh, lovely stubbly beard. So any closing thoughts about November 1987, what we've been looking at and... Any memories that have been flooding back to you as a result of, uh, of doing this? I think in 87, I was probably really quite mean about pop. I thought I'd gone beyond it. And actually, there's some fantastic material in this magazine. And I've really enjoyed listening to the music again, reading the lyrics, reading, you know, what people thought about those bands at the time. So, it, yeah, it's been really enlightening for me looking through this. I think for me, similar really to Kath, I... I'd kind of gone through my pop phase and I wasn't, this was the first time in a while I'd bought Smash Hits and, you know, I would have skipped the Carol Decker thing and I would have skipped the Blue Mercedes thing and the probably the Communars one as well, even though they're probably the most entertaining things to read in the magazine and I would have probably just read the U2 thing and I'd have flicked through the singles and cut out, you know, the picture of Morrissey and stuff. But, um, yeah, looking back... Um, there's some really, there's still some really funny stuff, and we always say this kind of era of Smash It's the writing is just so funny that even if you don't like the music that's been written about, you can get something from it. In this one, it's probably the, the artists and the groups that I like the least that I've enjoyed the articles about the most, you know, because it's just so good. And I, yeah, kind of looking back, I feel a bit bad that I was a, I was a bit snooty about music at that point. Uh, but that's because, how, you, how you are when you're that age. Yeah, I, but, yeah, I was very music's, serious about it. Yeah, all. music's very important to you at that age. I think particularly in that period in the 80s because it it was an all-defining thing and it was how you thought of yourself, it was how you related to your peers at the time. Totally. Um, and now it's not as tribal and I think young people today are happy listening to modern stuff and old stuff and they don't always know you know, when the things that they're listening to are even from, you know, what year it's from particularly, because it's just in the ether and it's just there. Whereas we were just, this is my thing and, and I love the Smiths and you love Bowie and Brian Ferry and, you know, whatever you liked, Kath, you know, it was, it, this is how you defined yourself. So you did take it very, very seriously. And as you get older, you can afford to lighten up a little bit about that. But I think for me, like I say, the, the defining thing about this issue is what we were talking about briefly before about that divergence between the the serious kind of 
almost, if you like, Live Aid music, the CD music, you know, those kind of heritage acts and the frothy pop stuff. Um, and after they'd been together really all the way through in Smash It's from 79 through to this point, this is where you're getting that, that fork in the road, really. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the thing that, that I noticed most about this, that, that split and that redefining of what is Smash It's and what is Q. And they were clearly going to have an effect on, on one another and what was in each of the mags. And there had been that, that common ground between them. But like you say, this is, this is the point where it, clearly a decision was made and there's that split. Um, what I also noticed was that there's a real air of dumper, particularly the ads, some of the artists here and there. So you've got um, singles for um, Errol Brown, Donny Osmond, who amazingly was only 29. I couldn't believe that. 29? <laughs> you know, like members of U2 were almost that age. Boy George as well, he, he was on the slide, as were the Style Council. And then you get that little bit in bits about, you know, Curious to Kill the Cat, um, level 42 and the Smiths are broken up. So th- these things that, that are happening and artists that aren't relevant to Smash It's being in there. So it just, yeah, there was an air of dumper, Le Dumper. Yeah, um, a whiff of Le Dumper. Yeah, um, ab- about it. So I think that that was the, my main takeaway is that, yeah, it's it's the, the end of an era for, for Smash It's. And from this point on, the focus was absolutely completely on pop. So, Kath, thank you very, very much indeed for not only inviting us round to your house, but also for some lovely cake and hot drinks, which were served very as well. Welcome, it's been a pleasure. And for selecting this issue of Smash It's and for chatting on about it. Yeah. It's been lovely. Have you enjoyed your ride on the carousel? Absolutely, 100%, yes. Marvellous. <laughs> <laughs> While we've been recording, I think uh, a few more sweets um, have come in, have they? Yes, I should just mention as well um, someone called Pete Brasted. Didn't retweet it, but liked my tweet saying uh, we're recording a new episode today. So we'll (laughs) say hello to you, Pete, anyway. So uh, thanks for listening. And um, until next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. Come and say hello to us uh, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can find us. We're at Giddy Pop Pod, um, or just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop. And our website as well, giddypophod.home.blog, where you'll also find the links to the edition of Smash It's that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists for that extra layer of experience. And we hope you can join us next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. Poor Aunt Phyllis. I lurched over to her and she was trying to keep me away, but I was sick over her taupe. Is it taupe or taupe? I can never remember. Taupe, I think, isn't it? I can't yeah, I'd say taupe. I'd say taupe, yeah. Um, but she was trying to keep me away, but I was sick all over her taupe, 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 taupe. 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 <laughs> Is that what we decided, Torp? I was, I, was, I was going through this earlier. Said, How do you pronounce this word? Let me try that again. But I was... It's lucky it's not morph. Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can handle that one, yeah. I lurched over to her and she was trying to keep me away, but I was sick all over her taupe. Torp! <laughs> what is it? Torp! It's Bernie Torpin. Bernie Torpin. All right, Bernie Torpin. Yeah. I think you could pronounce it both ways. Yeah, Yeah. say taupe if you want. Either or. Taupe, taupe, taupe. taupe. (laughs) It's just one of those words that just doesn't fix in my my head. Where is it now? Oh, yeah. I was was sick all over her (laughs) taupe.
Oh, God. I need a drink now. So. Shall we change its colour? <laughs> yeah. A blue. Beige. A beige, I don't know yeah. what colour is it? <laughs> I don't know, actually. I'm Let's like not the... go there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, compose myself. Top. Yeah? <laughs>